Welcome to Couch Time. I am your host, Susie, a licensed marriage and family therapist, joined by my co-host, Janet, licensed clinical social worker. Thank you for joining our show where we dive into topics like mental health and relationship wellness, along with sharing our experiences and lessons learned on our road to licensure and building a private practice. You can connect with us at roadtowellness.co and susiehologian.com, where you can also find show notes for this episode. Welcome everyone to Couch Time Podcast. My name is Janet Bayramian and I'm joined by my colleague. Hi everyone, I'm Susie Halajian. And today we are joined by Andrew Suskind, who is a seasoned clinician that we're so excited to speak with. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us. Sure, I'm so glad to be here. And I like the idea of being a seasoned clinician. <laughs> yeah, I do like to say that, you know, I've only been in practice for a couple of years, so I don't see myself as seasoned yet. But when I go to your trainings, I, I find you incredibly experienced. So we're really happy Thank to you. have you. Yeah, And sure. I'm greener than that. So it's it's <laughs> lovely to be in, in great company. I'm glad I could be here. I, I just wanted to share that next month is 30 years since I finished grad school. And I don't know how that happened because I'm only 35. But <laughs> Early start. <laughs> exactly. I was a child prodigy. Really? Well, love that. Love that. And happy, happy anniversary, you know, with Thank graduating you. grad school. I graduated in 2016. So five years. I can't believe time for me has flown by like that. I'm going to go ahead and plead the fifth. Thank you both. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andrew, uh, we'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, I think every clinician has their own story about what brought them into the field. So we'd love to hear more about that and, and what your background is in the mental health field. How much time do we have to, to go over my life story? <laughs> as long as That's you a, want. <laughs> it's a big question. This is going to sound really crazy, but I think I knew I was going to come into the field in utero. And the reason I say that is a little bit out of jest and a little bit out of, out of truth, because I was born into a family that had a lot of problems. Un Underneath it all, I think we loved each other, but we had no idea how to love each other. And so early on, I learned how to be the mediator, I learned how to be the surrogate parent. And so I think from, from an early age, I just was a really, really empathic little sensitive kid that absorbed everything around me and tried to make everything better. Fast forward, my, my aunt is a psychologist. She's here in Los Angeles and had her 88th birthday the other day. I moved out from the East Coast to Los Angeles in 1988 to be closer to her and her family. And that's when I, I decided to go to grad school for social work. And so that's the short story. My, my aunt really is the catalyst for me being here in Los Angeles and, and being in the field. When I finished grad school, I went on, of course, as we all do and became a licensed clinical social worker in my case. Beyond that, I also became a somatic experiencing practitioner, a brain spotting practitioner, a certified group psychotherapist, as well as a certified coach. 
And, and so I've done a lot of postgraduate trainings and I use them all in different ways. Uh, all these years, I've had a, a private practice in West LA. I, I also worked in many different hospitals and agencies for about 10 years alongside my private practice and then went into full-time private practice in, in 2003. So that's a very short version of how the evolution took place. Andrew, I would say that a lot of our listeners are they're either newly licensed or you know may still be in grad school. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of us when we do finish grad school or are even still in grad school feel like is what we're learning ever enough. And there is this like daunting idea of I just did all these years, I have to do all these hours, how will I ever ever find the space or energy to do postgraduate work, which, you know, in my opinion, is is the most important work to do. Do you have any advice for those who who might be considering or, or, you know, maybe even fearing starting new work again? It is a lifelong commitment. I'm constantly learning and growing and stretching in in how I do the work with my clients. So it doesn't really end per se, but I do say a couple of things to my associates. I say that your own therapy is primary to find the best therapist you can possibly find and to pay top dollar if you have to and stretch to to have that experience. Also to continually do the best consultation and supervision out there. That, that we learn from one another. And if we're just in our little cubby holes doing our work, it's, it's really isolating. And so to this day, I do consultation. I had a consultation hour with my consultant earlier today about my groups. And, and I love it because it keeps me on my growing edge. So supervision and consultation are not just about getting your hours. They're, they're in my opinion, again, lifelong. And then lastly, just find the trainings that are fun for you, you know, because I I did a lot of trial and error and I really enjoyed the trainings I've done along the way and I wouldn't trade them in for anything, but try to really follow your your gut, right? To, to listen to what feels right to you. It's always good to, you know, to check things out with others and to get reality checks. I have to say that sometimes I, I just followed the Pied Piper. Like if my colleagues were doing a, a particular training, I, I thought to myself, well, if they're doing it, I, I need to do it. And there's nothing wrong with that because I, again, I wouldn't trade any of my trainings for anything, but but have fun with them and, and find the trainings that really speak to you and that really work best for you, because that's really what's going to be more organic and enjoyable over time. Yeah. And and speaking of trainings, you know, you mentioned brain spotting, you mentioned being a certified group psychotherapist, you talked about sensory motor, I'm hearing a lot of it sounds like trauma <laughs> in those. And I know also in your background, you do work with individuals wanting to heal from addictions. So what I'm curious, what sparked your interest in those particular fields? First of all, I I never separate trauma and addiction. Addictive compulsive behaviors can always be traced to some kind of trauma, whether it be specific or relational or attachment in some form or another. So they overlap, right? And so what I found, and this is my own journey, is that I went into my own 12-step recovery back in 1994, and I went into recovery for sexual compulsivity. 
often called sex addiction, which I don't use that term so much anymore. But I, I went into recovery back then because my, my sexual exploration and experimentation and desire to, to be seen and to get approval and, and to be validated, I couldn't stop it. Like it, it started as something fairly innocent, but when I wanted to stop, I couldn't. And that's a hallmark of compulsion, really, when, when you want to stop, but you can't. So I really came into the field based on my own background, and I also have a background in my family of various kinds of addictive compulsive problems. It was a natural fit. I ended up in my associate position in private practice, my very first associate position back in 92. I was with a, a practice that focused a lot on people coming out of rehab. And this was at a time, believe it or not, for the, for I don't know how, how familiar you both are with the rehab world, but Malibu has dozens and dozens of rehabs nowadays. In 1992, there were no rehabs in Malibu. If you wanted to go to rehab, there was a few old programs around, but most people went to Arizona or Minnesota or different places. Long story short, I was really taken under the wings of my supervisors because I didn't know clinically how to work with this population. I just knew from me being in the 12-step rooms, and there is a difference. They were just wonderful. I mean, I felt like I was in this nest of learning for I actually stayed with them eight years. I was with them for about three and a half years before I got licensed and then about four plus years after I got my license because I, I enjoyed them. I enjoyed the supervision and I was working part-time in, in other facilities, kind of fine-tuning what it meant to be a clinician. So, you know, I think it's a great question and it Everybody has a little different path, but I think mine was based in growing up in a family with problems, going into my own 12-step recovery, finding a practice that specialized in that area, and as a result, really seeing it as brokenheartedness, right? I, I don't really see addiction as addiction. I, I see all of addiction and trauma as brokenheartedness. I really appreciate your vulnerability, Andrew, and I can quite relate to what you're sharing. You know, I am also a trauma therapist. I do EMDR work with clients and I feel as though what brought me to that field as well is just my own trauma recovery. So I appreciate you sharing that. And just kind of as an aside, you know, you talked about the rehab programs in, in your experiences. A couple years ago, I did a training with Doug Braun Harvey on out of control sexual behaviors. I'm sure you know him and his work. Mm -hmm. What really excited me about his training, not just in some of the research that he shared, but that he actually stepped into a lot of these rehabs and helped them create a program where sex can be part of the discussion in recovery. He, he talked about how it was mind blowing to learn that in these recovery programs with, you know, all of the groups that they do and all of the interventions that they do, that sexual healing was not a part of it. And I thought, Oh my gosh, like what an amazing point. Like how, how can we not talk about this in, in a rehab program when sex is such a big part of our lives? I couldn't agree more. I really admire Doug and his work, and he has brought such a breath of fresh air into the treatment center world and 
into the um, recovery world from sexual compulsion. He calls his last book was Treating Out of Control Sexual Behaviors, Rethinking Sex Addiction. And so he comes from a sexual health model. And without going into all of the controversy, it's really discouraging to me that there's different camps, that there's the sexual health clinicians and there's the sex addiction therapists. And I actually don't belong to either side. I, I kind of hold a Switzerland somewhere in the middle. Doug has really brought a dialogue about sexual health and what it means to really create honest conversations around sexual wellness. And I, I so appreciate his work and his research. I guess my question on that same note would be, do you feel like there is a way to help progress that the blending and, and having clinicians, newer clinicians, maybe even more seasoned clinicians be able to look at it as as the combination that it is? It's such a great question. And it's something I'm I'm personally trying to do through the book I wrote and through my podcasting and my blogging and various workshops and conferences that I go to because it's silly that there's such a separateness. In my opinion, it's all about healing and anything that can be collaborative towards healing is, is really what counts the most. And, you know, in, in my book, what I tried to do was bring the sexual health model into awareness, into the way I wrote the book, but also respecting what the, the sex addiction therapists and the 12-step recovery rooms are, are all about. It's, it's not easy to blend all of that. I think I have a little different voice because I've never aligned formally with either the sexual health experts or the, the certified sex addiction therapists. So I'm, I'm kind of orbiting around both of them. Giving you more flexibility and room to do that. Oops. So, yeah. And you mentioned that you are an author of, of books, and I'd love to also learn more about that because, you know, Andrew, I think what we're, Susie and I, what we're inspired by is the clinical field has evolved and, and changed so much. And now many clinicians are, are wearing so many different hats. We're not just in the office seeing clients. Now we're actually seeing clients virtually. Now we're teaching at universities, we're hosting podcasts, we're authors. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious in your career, what has sort of inspired you to try and, and do some of these different aspects of the field? Another big question, but I'll, I'll start with my experience going through a, a coach training program because I, I went through an 18-month training program. And my coach, who was part of my training, was one of the most inspiring people ever in my life. I, when I met her, I, I immediately knew that she was going to be influential in some of whatever was going to be happening in my career. It's kind of a funny story, so I'll share what happened. So I went through the training, and after the 18 months, I still wanted more support from her. So she lived in Palo Alto at the time, and we would have, I guess it was Skype calls, <laughs> dating us a little bit. And I loved working with her. I just wanted to understand how I could really have a practice and professional experience that was going to be most satisfying, most fun, most liberating. She ended up moving to Northern Italy. Her husband was from Southern Switzerland. And for my 40th birthday, I, I said to her, her name is Sandra, but she goes by Sam. I said, Sam, 
how would you feel about me coming to Italy for an intensive for a few days? And for me, that was kind of a crazy out of the box kind of request. I had never been to Italy. I'd never traveled by myself. And she said, sure, why don't we talk about it and set it up? So sure enough, I went to Northern Italy on one of the, the lakes up there and where she lived. I spent five days there and that was the birthplace of my first book. What I mean by that is somehow in our conversations and somehow in the way we were looking at what I wanted to do and what my heart was really telling me, I realized that even though I find writing really difficult, I, I like to express and I like to share ideas. And it's almost like a way of teaching. I ended up writing a coaching workbook for those in recovery. It did not get published. I tried to, to sell it to various publishers and it didn't quite get any traction, but that's okay. I ended up self-publishing it, which I was very proud of. And what it did was, is it helped me build muscle around writing and around feeling confidence around writing and and around finding my voice in, in writing. Fast forward, the book that I wrote, It's Not About the Sex, the, the recent book, was really based on being in the 12-step rooms for a long time, being in the therapy rooms for a long time, and seeing people stop the behaviors, but still suffering, right? That was my heartache. I was, I just didn't know why people were able to stop the behaviors for the most part, but were still suffering underneath. And so I, I just brainstormed what are, what, are, what are the different things that are not being fully explored or not being fully resolved somehow. And that's how I wrote the book is I came up with things like emotional sobriety and shame and narcissism and regulating the nervous system and cultivating contentment and, and all those things that somehow in the rooms of 12 step and somehow in the rooms of therapy, I'm not saying it doesn't get fully processed, but I think that a lot of folks either don't have access to those things or, or don't know how to really get those things addressed. Again, I'm not sure if I answered your question is a little circuitous, but that's how this particular book took shape. It sounds like a mix of things happened. It sounds like there was, I don't know if this is such a strong word, but maybe kind of destiny that you met somebody that was quite influential in your life, like you said. And then I'm hearing a lot of it was you going with your gut of, let me just ask, let me see if I can do this intensive. Such a beautiful story. Thank you. It kind of warms my heart even as I share it because I had no idea that that's how things would unfold. That was 2000 that I met Sam and did the coach training. And the, the last 20 years have flown by. And you're right. It, it really did feel like destiny. And in this case, Sam came into my life for a reason, for sure. And I wonder, I know that you also, Andrew, supervise a lot of associate clinicians as well. Did, did your experience with Sam also in, inspire you to supervise newer, maybe more fresh out of grad school clinicians? So one of the things that you may know about coaching, but it's really about core values and about being in alignment with what whatever it is that gives one purpose. One of the things that I haven't done formally is I've never taught in a university setting as a professor or as a visiting professor that, that hasn't been part of my journey. But I decided with Sam that it was really important for me to teach. And how is that going to 
take shape, maybe in an unorthodox way. And so, yes, when I brought associates into my practice, it was very thoughtful because I, I knew I wanted that experience and I wanted to give back what I had been given. And I've had such incredible supervision and consultation through the years that it just was a, a clear path for me to give back what I was given. Yeah. I'd like to highlight that because it seems like so much of your work really aims to fill in gaps, you know, whether it's through teaching associates or, or writing your books and, and helping extend your knowledge. And I think that's such a underappreciated thing that so many therapists do. You know, it's easy to kind of do your work, get your hours, get licensed, get these certifications and kind of say like, well, that's me. That's my work. I'm, I'm kind of done. You know, this is what I do. I'll continue to help my clients progress, but not give back to the, the progression of the therapy field and give back to therapists. And I mean, really from everyone, I think this is coming from like wanting to say thank you for that, but mm -hmm. also highlighting how important it is to continue that and to, to help that growth be the important facet of what therapy is. Thank you for saying that. Another piece background wise is that I was raised in a Jewish background and I was raised with the values of giving back. That's part of what I was taught from when I was a little, little kid. And it's so much a part of me. And I think what you're saying, Susie, is that it's sometimes forgotten. And yet I really gravitate towards my colleagues who have very similar values. And I, I really... I, a friend of mine says that it's your job in life to find your people and that there's your people and then there's the rest of the world. And so I, I do gravitate towards those that, you know, take their professional lives seriously, but also are really about giving back. I mean, we're in the helping field. If we're being stingy or withholding any of that, we're probably in the wrong field. I wonder too, Andrew, with regards to, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier of the field changing in a way. And, and I think some of the more obvious ways that I, we can talk about here is just what we've all gone through last year and having us to shift to telehealth and, you know, and I'm sure you have comments about that, but mm -hmm. what, what would you feel like has been in your experience, some of the shifts that you've seen in, in the mental health field, either where you are in mm -hmm. West LA yeah. or just maybe even in general? So glad you, you mentioned that because I'm having flashbacks to grad school when in the entire program, we never talked about the nervous system. It just wasn't part of the curriculum. You know, I, I'm very grateful for my background as a psychodynamic, family systems, more traditional talk therapist, and that will always be a part of who I am. But the shift really came when all of the somatic training started to take shape. And for me, I love my somatic experiencing training, although three years of commitment is a lot for, for some people. So there's other ways of doing it. I have really gone headfirst into brain spotting. I love brain spotting and it's kind of a cousin of EMDR in a way. And so that's the biggest thing that's shifted is, is that I started off solely as a talk therapist and, and then I 
really immerse myself in, in somatic work, which of course is how do I regulate my own nervous system first? How do I take care of that so that I can be more available to my clients? It's been a huge tidal wave of understanding the, the nervous system. I think the whole field of interpersonal neurobiology is fascinating. I, I'm not someone who's well-versed in talking about the brain. I talk about the neocortex and the subcortex, but that's a about it. And and yet what I do know is that, especially with trauma work, I find that it's impossible to really do the deeper work and the deeper healing without the somatic work, without my clients understanding and experiencing what the nervous system has to tell them. So that's been the biggest change through the years. And to sort of comment on that too, this is sort of a different acknowledgement that I wanted to share, but I'm sure you've seen more and more therapists are out now on, on social media and, and sharing things like the importance of regulating the nervous system and that somatic work. So I even find that when newer clients come to me, they kind of already know that stuff. Like they already mm -hmm. get it. They already know, they've already read some of the books that I may have already recommended to them. So I love that. I think, yes, there's been a lot of integration of the nervous system and how to incorporate that work within the clinical community, I think now it's also spilling into the prospective clients that come in as well. I couldn't agree more. And I'm very humble about it all because as much as we know, we really don't know. We're learning so much all the time. And our conversation today is very different from our conversation 30 years ago and is going to be super different from what it is 30 years from now. So I find it all exciting and, and a wonderful infusion into the healing modalities. And can I ask, you know, again, I'm, we talked a little bit about having gone through this difficult last year, isolation and quarantine and all of that. I don't know if your, your practice transitioned to telehealth, but if it did, I'm, I'm curious what that process was like for you and in that transition. And also like, for example, the brain spotting, can that be done online? Well, I believe that the pandemic was an unbelievable test for all of us, a test in resiliency, a test in asking for help, a test in regulating our own nervous systems. And, you know, I'm really fortunate. I have a lot of support in my life so that I never felt alone during the pandemic. I felt a little cabin fever at times, but I'd never felt alone really. And so on a personal note, that made it much easier because I'm sure as both of you have seen clients who have been living alone through this or clients who have very young children are seem to be the most challenged by it in different ways. But what I would say about my practice is really interesting. I had a few clients wait. They, they said to me, you know what? I don't like this idea of working by Zoom, but I'll be back when, when you're back in the office. And actually they've been waiting all this time, which is a credit to their patients. But pretty much it was seamless. Almost all of my clients came to telehealth and I learned it 
as we all did, kind of as we went along. I mean, I, I did not, I didn't do video sessions or online line sessions before the pandemic, so it was it was kind of a, a steep learning curve. But for some reason, I liked the challenge because I felt like it was again an opportunity for for me to learn, for me to be challenged to see if I could have the kind of resonance with my clients that I enjoy. The most difficult was my groups. I have three process groups and that was not easy. They were angry and disappointed and longing to be together. And all of that was naturally grist for the mill, right? We, we needed to process that. But to answer your question, Janet, I would have to say that it surprised me for, for myself how the transition went okay. I mean, it wasn't easy. It wasn't the most, at first, It was I, I felt frustrated myself sometimes, but then somehow I found a way to adjust. I mean, kind of like the way we're talking with each other today, we're in different locations, we're kind of used to this, and we get to have a shared experience, right? Like we do with our clients as well. Oh, and the answer about brain spotting. I, yes, um, yes. There's a particular kind of brain spotting where I don't even use the pointer, where I have somebody find what we call a gaze spot, G-A-Z-E spot. And I almost do exclusively gaze spotting. And, and a lot of my clients who continue to do the brain spotting already had done it in person, but I did have a few come to me who did brain spotting without any any background with it. They, they just knew they wanted to, to try it and it worked actually surprisingly well. That's great to hear. It's great to hear that these modalities are effective virtually. I think that brings upon a sense of at least comfort for me, thinking both as a clinician to be supportive to clients, but even just on a human level, if I want to seek this treatment, from you, Andrew, I can do this virtually with you too. Right. Yeah. It really speaks to the resiliency to me of both clients, but of course us therapists as well, but really for clients diving into it with us. Mm -hmm. I think it's a certain desire, right? If somebody has a deep desire to heal and part of the work is the relational attunement, right? It's the relationship between clinician and client, the neurobiological attunement kind of finds its own space. It's, it's absolutely different, but it, but it seems to work just as nicely. Andrew, you, you spent a little bit of time talking about your book and you mentioned supervising as well. Could you please take an extra minute to really let our listeners know about everything that you do, where they could kind of find you, reach out if they need to, where they could find your books and trainings and all of these wonderful things that you offer to the community. Thanks, Susie. So the easiest place to find everything is, is my website, which is westsidetherapist.com. And that's all one word, singular, Westside Therapist. And on my website, there's the links to my podcast. There's links to my blogs. There's information about my trainings and my upcoming presentations. And there's information about my books. My recent book, like I said, is called It's Not About the Sex moving from isolation to intimacy after sexual addiction. My previous book, the coaching workbook is called From Now On, Seven Keys to Purposeful Recovery. Yeah, they're both on Amazon. Uh, it's not about the sex, it's on Audible and Kindle. And 
Amazon. So if you want to listen to it or read it, it's all available there. Yeah. And if anybody has any questions for me, or I can be a resource to anybody here in Los Angeles, even if it's not in my practice, I, I've been here a long time and I'm happy to share ideas and resources. Perfect. We will make sure to link your website, your contact information, the books, all of that in the show notes. So to everyone who I know is listening and thinking, yes, I want more information. You can find it in our show notes. Yeah. And, and thank you so much again for being here. We have one final question that we ask all of our podcast guests. We again, like to talk about how to be a modern therapist. So we like to ask everyone, how do you keep it real as a modern therapist? Such a great question. It's so funny because I, I, I see myself as a traditionalist, and and nowadays I'm very seasoned, as you mentioned earlier. But I think I stay modern by identifying my growth areas. Right? If I know what my growing edge is, I I know what to focus on. And so for me, my modern therapist approach has to do with with consultation, with having a close network of colleagues who I really count on and who I really depend on when I'm having some difficulties because we all have difficulties in our practice at one time or another. I really, like I said before, not to sound like a broken record, but being in my own therapy keeps me modern, seeking consultation, still going to trainings. I'm, I'm very, I'm, for instance, as a group therapist, there are a lot of group therapists more seasoned than me. And so I'm always learning from those who have been around longer. And I think that's the approach that I always take is that, like I said before, as much as I know, I, I don't know. And I'm really open to staying on that growing edge so I can have fun. I mean, if I'm not having fun and there's not a particular ease and love really that goes along with the work, I know I'm not, I'm probably getting a little jaded or stale. And that's the opposite of what I'm looking for to stay modern. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's such a, such an important reminder. We're such a professional and serious field, but that doesn't mean that you can't have fun with it. And it doesn't mean that growth stops at any point and along that. Well, thank you so much again, Andrew, for all of the, the wisdom and the vulnerability that you shared with us today. To any of the listeners, if you guys have any further questions, feel free to reach out to us. If you have topics that you feel like would be important to discuss in future episodes, let us know. I'm on Instagram at Therapy with Janet B. I'm at Sessions with Susie, and we will all hear from you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Are you in a long distance relationship? Is it difficult to find people who just get it? We know for us, it was challenging to feel understood and supported. That's why we created a collection of worksheets and guides for how to navigate long distance. You'll find information like how to communicate with your partner, how to keep things spicy, and how to discuss your values and closing the distance. This is totally for you. Head over to www.suzyhalajian.com shop to pick up your own copy and learn the skills to empower your relationship. Thank you for joining us today on Couch Time. You can find show notes for this episode linked in the description along with all our references and resources mentioned today. If you enjoyed this episode, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next one. We will chat again soon. Bye.